Yeah, in Galatians chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verse 1, maybe get to verse 2. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Recently, I've been doing a lot of... uh, Uh, studying on shepherding. And to think about a a shepherd as far as in the church, it's good to go back and look at what shepherds did with sheep, actual sheep. And I came across an interesting thought. It's from a a shepherd from England. And she was saying, or they were saying, how foolish that particular animal is, how vulnerable sheep are. And this is what they say. The author writes, My mother, a hill farmer of expert skill, is still amazed at the variety of ways the sheep can find to die. Even the hardy Welsh mountain breed with which I was brought up are susceptible to many diseases. And he names them Braxy, Pulpy Kidney, I never heard of any of these, Staggers, Pneumonia, Pastorella, Twin Lamb Disease, Cancer, Hypothermia in the winter, Maggots in the summer, Scab, Scrapey, foxes, crows, dogs. They push their heads through the fences and get stuck. They climb trees to pick at foliage and get hung up by their horns and legs. They fall down banks, get bitten by snakes, stung by wasps. They stumble into ponds and streams. By the way, when they do that, their coat, heavy, sinks them, they die. They gorge themselves on fallen ash leaves, roll on their backs, and blow up like a balloon. That's actually called cast sheep. You know, and they'll just sit there like this, you know, on their back. They poison themselves on ragwort. Ram's horns regularly grow into their head. They starve, freeze, fall ill. But, they say, a good shepherd, and I'm going to say this, a good good church can counter every affliction. Why do I like that? Because we are so susceptible to falling, to sinning. Like the song says, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. You know, we can sing praises to the God right now, to our God. And yet, in a very short time, you leave. And before the end of the day, even, some of you have not only been tempted, but fallen at temptation. We're like sheep. And thankfully, we have a great shepherd. And thankfully, the great shepherd has put other shepherds in charge called under-shepherds. And thankfully, it's not just the under-shepherd's responsibility, but it's the entire church's responsibility. And that's what we're getting at right here. Do we really love one another? And do we love one another so much so that if a man is overtaken in any trespass, that we are willing and able and wanting to restore? Okay? Again... Believers, and I want you to get this, it's, it's not just about the shepherds, the under-shepherds, the elders, the leaders, but every believer is, is responsible to mutually care for the body of believers. Okay, so this, this passage here is not just talking about elders, it's talking about each one of us. Picking up the fallen brethren, because again, we all sin. Have you found that in your own life even this last week? Now think back, just this last week, can you identify times where you fell? Can you, can you, or times of temptation, of times of being wayward, of times when God has brought you back, of times that you repented? Can you think of that? Now, can you also think of 
others around you are, who are in that situation. Maybe they're continually in that situation. They've fallen and they haven't gotten up yet. That's real important. It's real important that we understand that we're in that spot too, okay? Sometimes we project ourselves, even in our thinking, well, yeah, they have issues, as though we don't. And yet John 1 says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we really cannot go back over this last week and say, okay, I see where God was chasing me. I see where God was helping me through that temptation. I see where I needed God. I went to him and repented. And repented. I confessed and repented. Then again, maybe we're starting to fall on this thing that, well, we, we don't have any sin right now. We're beyond this. Again, God will give us victories. But because of our, the sin force within us, we still are tempted and many times we fall. Well, here's a fallen brethren. Here's someone in the army, by the way, Christian, who is not an overcomer at the moment, who is not victorious. Let's look at the condition of the overcomer. By the way, you can fill that in. I have a few fill-ins today. The condition of the, uh, excuse me, the overtaken, not the overcomer. That's the problem. He's been overtaken. Verse 1, brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass. Now again, the word overtaken is in the heiress. In other words, there was a point in time something happened to this person. And again, a Christian. We're not talking about the unsaved. I'm not saying that you don't care about the unbeliever, but here it's a family issue. See, I keep going back and saying, do I really care that much about people who are fallen? I'm talking people within the body of Christ who are not making it, who are not victorious. Do I really care that much? Or am I so concerned about my life, my family, my direction? Well, they have their problems, but I don't want to deal with it. But again, overtaken. This is what the word overtaken means. It implies that the person was actually seen committing the trespass. In other words, it's verifiable. He was caught in the act. He was found out. Kind of like John 8. You know, the woman caught in the act of adultery. Verifiable, right there. That's the first part. There's actually two parts to this word. One is, it's verifiable. It's not hearsay. We have to be careful because sometimes through second, third-hand information, somehow we get information that someone's sinning. Well, wait a second. Let's make sure it's verifiable. The other part of this, though, has the idea of the man actually being caught by the sin. Again, something they do against their better judgment. It was like running after them. Sin can be very powerful. And this here's a person who was caught by their own sin. Not only that they were caught, but it, the sin itself caught them. It's like James 1.14 says, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And the idea, that's a fishing terms where with a fish, and if you go in a stream and around, sometimes uh, underneath where the, um, like a tree is growing and it's been wore out underneath where the stream is, and that's where the fish hang out, and they're safe there. They're, you know, they're looking at food that's going by, but they're safe. They're underneath, they're in a safe place. But, but the wording, now again, I want you to catch it. They're drawn away. That means they're drawn from safety and enticed. And what happens, the fisherman, what's his objective? Is to throw the bait close and it, the fish comes out to see what that is. Oh, that's a worm. And then all of a sudden they're enticed, ready to grab it. And once they grab it, then you set the hook, right? Many people have, have gone after the temptation, they, they thought it was something that was going to satisfy them, and now they find that they're caught by the sin, okay? 
It's actually grabbed them. Rather than them grabbing it, it's grabbing them. That's the other side of this word overtaken, that it's actually they're being caught by the sin. You see this with addictions. You see this with pornography. You dabble, and all of a sudden now it catches you. You see this with immorality. But you see it also with gossip. You can see it with worry. You can see it with fear. You dabble, but then it catches you. And this is a destroying sin. Okay, so this is serious. If a man is overtaken, now let's get to the next part, in a trespass. It's interesting because I, I read a number of authors on this, and they all seem to agree that this was not a premeditated sin. They didn't go out to destroy themselves. By the way, who does? Nobody goes out to destroy themselves, at least at first. So this is not necessarily a deliberate, habitual, premeditated sin. This is somebody caught in a sin, but what, what, what might this trespass? By the way, the word is actually trespass. It's not the normal word uh, for sin. It, it might be this. Let me give you a few scenarios. It might be that they failed to be on guard and they stumbled. They deviated from a truth. It was simply because they failed to be on guard. Some people fall into sin because they fail to be on guard. They don't realize the severity or the seductiveness of that particular sin in their own life. They fail to be on guard and therefore fell into this particular trespass. Or they flirted with the temptation they thought they, that they could withstand. See, with, when it comes to temptation, we go in thinking we can withstand that. And I'm not just talking sexual and sensual, but that's a big one. We can somehow overcome it. Temptations have a way of catching us off guard. You know that? That's why be careful. Make sure you're seeking to live your life proactively, not reactively. I found years ago that one of the things I should never do is when I'm really tired and really frustrated, just sit down at 11 o'clock at night because I just kind of want to unwind and just start flipping through channels. I always end up on the wrong one. I always end up watching something I say, oh, why did I you know, waste my time? Or why was it so sinful and I just allowed it? See, we fall many times because we don't understand how seductive the temptation is. So they might have stumbled. They may not have understood how, how bad the sin was. It might be a person that has been overcome, and overcome or overtaken by gossip. I mean, the sins are not, again, just the, 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 the five serious sins that we sometimes think about, like, you know. It could be any sin, but this person is becoming a characteristic of their life, and it's, and it's destroying their Christian walk. Let me give you a third way that this trespass might have played out in their life. It might be, again, a stumbling. It might be a temptation they didn't realize they couldn't withstand. It also might be, in the context of Galatians, the person who thinks they can live the Christian life in their own power. And as verse 16 says, they're not walking in the Spirit. Verse 18, they're not being led by the Spirit. Verse 25, which is another word for walk. Uh, that word walk there is another Greek word, means to be in step with the Spirit. They're basically living the Christian life on their own. They're not living it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of Christians find themselves right there. And now they are, they are failing. In other words, the things that come out of their mouth with their families, the, the thoughts that they have, and they're just drowning. And, and now symptoms are starting to float, are becoming obvious that this person either is not a believer or, or for sure they're not victorious. And they're caught, overtaken, in a trespass. 
I think of an illustration from my own life, a physical illustration that caught one of my kids. We were at the lake years ago. This is about 10 years ago now, 12 years ago. And um, it was on Sandy Pond. And we were, we, uh, the way you go to that particular is there's a, a, a boater's beach, so you have to dock your boat on this side, walk across this sand uh, bridge, as it were, and then you get into where Lake Erie, or Lake Ontario is. And my kids were so excited, you know, and it was a warm summer day, kind of windy, but they just, one just sped off in front of us and just, hey, hey, Dad, I'm going to go swimming, and, and jumped in. And probably eight years old, was up to about here, and all of a sudden, help, I can't come to shore. And what it was, it was a, a riptide, undertide, and started to go out. And, and I remember, I, mean, I still feel like, you know, the, and I like, you know, and it was, it was deep on me too, you know, I mean, it was about this, so I couldn't, you know, and I remember just reaching out, and, and, and thankfully, because I always go back to that time, like, what happened if I couldn't, and it's like the, the wave kind of comes, you know how it comes in, and, I, and it's like I remember just grabbing like three fingers, you know, and I didn't let them go, you know, <laughs> pulled them back, and then I had my talk with them. <laughs> By the way, that's a good way to think about dealing with people that are hurting. Have the talk with them after you rescue them. Sometimes we chasing them during the, you know, when they're actually drowning. But anyways... He was overtaken. He was in a situation that he couldn't resolve on his own. He needed somebody to come and rescue him. And if you can think of that in many, many uh, contexts, that's how people in the church are, okay? They need rescuing. Maybe you do. By the way, maybe you need rescuing and you've been very quiet about it. You're drowning in your own sorrow. You're drowning in your own sin. I would encourage you to be vulnerable and be a little transparent. I don't mean total everything out on the line, but I'm saying enough so that you say, you know, I need help. And hopefully we'll listen and help. Sometimes we listen and walk away. And I, and I, I know at times I've done that, and I'm sure we have. But again, we have to be willing to cry out for help too. He did. Help! <laughs> you know? Uh, let's think about how this person is caught. What is he caught by? And again, fill-ins. It may be that the person was caught by a false teaching. Again, in the context, we're talking about Judaizers. That's what Galatians is about. Remember what the false teaching of Judaizers were? That the Gentiles had to become Jews by circumcision before they could become Christians or really solid Christians. And that any person was only righteous and spiritual if they remained bound under the Mosaic laws, ceremonies, and regulations. In other words, you had to be a Jew. He had to keep the law. That false teaching, Paul is, I think, addressing here when he says, overtaken in a trespass. Again, legalism or legalists. We need to rescue people from legalism. Because again, if they are a legalist, they're going to try to do things on their own strength. They are not going to understand and enjoy the joy of the Spirit the peace of the Spirit that the Spirit gives, they're not going to be able to really rejoice in God. We need to rescue those type of people. Again, there's a lot of false teaching that people can get uh, uh, hooked up with. I think of some of the things that have been going on recently. Well, the end of the world. How many of you thought it was going to be, you know, yesterday? By the way, I'm not even sure what the the camping was thinking about, Harold Camping. Was it Harold Camping? Is that the guy's name? And I couldn't quite figure, was he talking about the rapture or the actual end of the world? 
If he was anything of a theologian, he should have known there's at least 1,007 years to go because we have a tribulation and a thousand-year reign of Christ. Couldn't be the end. I think that's what he was referring to. You know what? There's a case where bad hermeneutics came to the wrong conclusion. By the way, even Christ himself said, you know, it's up to the Father. It's so foolish. But the reason I bring that one up is it just happened yesterday. But also this. The fact is that a person who falls into that is going to be, again, today, demoralized. I mean, think about saying that, telling people that, selling their home, ready to go. I mean, some of those people could be very, really struggling today. By the way, we should correct it anyways because it makes us look like fools. But again, false teaching can bring you down and can suck you down. Let me give you some other false teaching. There's a lot of false teaching concerning spiritual gifts. People call about the second blessing, like you don't have it all. Can you see how hard that is? Or prosperity theology, health, wealth. And all of a sudden, now you tell me I have cancer and I'm going to die at a young age. And now my whole world is spinning, not just because I have to leave my family, but my theology must be wrong or else I'm a sinner. Something's wrong. Do you see how that bad theology can really create havoc in a a Christian's life? So again, uh, many times that's the person that's overtaken because they thought everything was supposed to end well, happy. Prosperity theology, people need to be rescued from that. In fact, with prosperity theology, the idea is you have to be happy. And if I'm not, that can lead to a lot of problems in your life. She's not making me happy. I'm out of it. I'm divorcing because she's not making me happy. Bad theology, overtaken in a trespass. That's one of the areas that a a person can be caught by, false teaching. How about another one? A particular sin. Maybe that they were caught by a particular sin. Again, go back to verse 19 of chapter 5, the works of the flesh. Look at all the things that you can be caught by. Adultery, fornication. Adultery is the actual act. Fornication is the act. But uncleanness, lewdness is in the mind. It's, it's, it's just a filthy mind. But look at some of the other things you can be caught by. Just not that. How about this? Outbursts of wrath. In other words, violent anger. Raging resentment. Or look at the last few verses, uh, drunkenness, revelries, carousing, all those things you can be caught by. Can a Christian be caught in those areas? Yes. I've known Christians, even pastors, who when they spoke, it was not of a, of a, a holy nature, a godly nature. I mean, godly content. It's always very uh, secular. How about, let me give you one other thing. You can be caught by false teaching. You can be caught by uh, particular sins, but you can also be caught by an attitude, a heart issue. Uh, look at uh, the last part of, or first part of verse 20, idolatry. That's a heart issue. Because idolatry is hitching your heart to something other than God. People can get hooked, and, and you can start seeing it come out in their life. Again, this is where you really see, like, fear and worry come out. You can start saying... You are being controlled by idolatry. Or, but it might come out in other ways. Hoarding? Spending? Uh, many times those are the type of people that are hooked because they're spending, they're hoarding, being a workaholic. I'm not saying it's, it's bad. I love working. But again, sometimes I'm going to provide. I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to have all the, all the things in this life now. 
So again, it's not just sexual sensual. It's, it's other kinds of things that can be brought out in a person's life. If the truth be known, we all struggle in some area. And then let me just give you a few others out of this works of the flesh, verses 19 to 21. When it says hatred, you may know somebody who's a believer, but there's another person in that person's life that they hate. In fact, if you even bring up the name, you can see the eyes change. You can see the facial. They're overtaken. And rather than just walk by that person, we need to say, wait a second here. Something's going on in your heart. Envy is a hard issue. Selfish ambition is a hard issue. A lot of that revolves around the fear of man, of what people think and stuff like that. And because it didn't happen, now I I have these issues, these hard issues. So again, overtaken in a trespass. That trespass can be a particular sin, but it can be a hard attitude too. Those are the most dangerous because they don't always come out the same. So again, we've just looked at the condition of the overtaken. I hope you have a pretty good idea. Uh, there's a lot of people out there like this, and we need to have our eyes and ears open, our antennas up. How can we help? And also ask this question, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm dealing with that hatred. Maybe I'm dealing with that envy. Maybe I'm dealing with those issues from the heart that create the fear and the worry. And it's not just that I'm dealing with it. If you're dealing with it, that's great. You're on the path of growth. But it's that you're overtaken by it. Again, like that son of mine who was being swept out to sea. See, he needed help. He couldn't do it on his own. Well, let's look at the second part, the requirement of the restorer. Because, again, this is all about restoration, right? I mean, because we're getting to that key, ver- uh, key verb, restore such a one. But let's look at the, uh, the requirement of the restorer. And, again, he starts out, he says, Brethren, Christian, right? That makes sense. The first requirement... <clears throat> of one who can restore. And by the way, when I say a requirement, I'm saying it's a right and it's a responsibility. If we're, letting, if we're letting other believers down in this area, we're letting God down. This is part of our requirement. This is something that we are obligated to do. But who can do it? Well, first of all, a believer, a brethren. Now think about who a brother is in the Lord. The moment a person receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord... The Spirit of God enters that person's heart. That's the believer that you saw him out there, right? Brethren, a believer in Jesus Christ, one who has put their faith and trust in him. They're the ones that he's referring to. It's not an unbeliever, a believer. We need to ask the question, are you a true believer in Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? And if you have, are you acting like one? Sometimes we do. We get very individualistic in our, um, in our, especially our society, because our society is so in, so individualistic. Again, you got to remember, back in the the first century, it was all about corporate. It was all about family. It was all about us. And now it becomes in America about me, the all great I. This is what I need. Again, Paul's writing from a biblical context saying, no, it's not all about you. It's all about us. So again, a a brethren, one who is also part of the family of God. But in this context, there's a sense in which some are more spiritual than others. In other words, what, what, what is the first step that makes you spiritual? You receive Christ as Savior. 
But when he says, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, he's not just talking about believers. He's talking about about a specific type of believer. And I would say that this, it's about those who are in step with the Holy Spirit. Remember what he said in verse 25? Uh, last week we ended it with this, verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That word walk is different than verse 16. It's a military term. It's one who has taken their commands, their orders from the commander. And here we're taking our commands, our orders from the Holy Spirit. We're in step with the Spirit. We are walking where He wants us to march, as it were. Think of, a, think of an army. Again, all the different guys behind the sergeant, but the sergeant is the one uh, uh, throwing out the commands, and everyone in the company has to follow the sergeant, right? Or I guess that's how it plays out. Bottom line is that's how he's saying it here. That's the word walk there. Are you following the Spirit's commands? That's the spiritual one here. You who are spiritual, you who are walking with the Spirit, you who are in step with the Spirit, you're the ones that need to restore. You know, this raises an important question. What does it mean to be spiritual? Now, I've just given it to you, but let me build on that for a moment. Because this kind of floats around. (coughs) One of the most unusual figures in church history was a man named Simeon the Stylite. You ever heard of him? Simeon? He lived back uh, around 423, and he was one of the first so-called, quote, desert fathers. This is what the guy did. He constructed a, a short pillar on the edge of the Syrian desert, climbed to the top of it, and lived there for six years. Just again, one guy, one pillar out in the desert. That's why they call him a desert father. Simeon received many visitors to his desert perch. No doubt many of them came to see it, if he was out of his mind, I think I would have. Maybe he had the, like a popcorn stand right there. But again, the hermit explained this, that he was simply a Christian who wanted to commune with God in solitude, free from worldly distractions, living on top of a pole in the desert, was his way of separating himself from sin and consecrating himself to God. And many people would look at that type of person and say, man, that is really spiritual. But again, that's not spiritual. That's not the way God is using, or Paul is using the word here. He was trying to make himself spiritual. Well, let's keep thinking about this. So what makes you spiritual? Again, there's a lot of wrong thinking out there. Some, For some, it's personal. They would say this, if, without hearing this message or studying this text, they would have said this. Well, if you really want to be spiritual, you have to have you know your own devotions, quiet time. You have to... Uh, Maybe go to a retreat center. Some people rushed from uh, seminar to seminar trying to get spirituality. No, it's the spiritual disciplines. No, it's fasting. No, it's prayer or maybe all those together. Oh, it's fellowshipping with one another. That's what makes you spiritual. Let me just say, that's not what makes you spiritual. Okay? I'm not saying not to do those, but that's not what makes you spiritual. See, other people would say this. It's being in the right environment. It's, it's it being in church. And they might add and say this. Well, it's when I'm in public worship, uh, just the liturgy, all the different aspects of public worship, it just brings me up to God. Or the candles, now if you're in other different type churches, the incense. It's playing the right music on the right instrument. Or maybe it's this. It's playing the, or having the right music with no instrument. 
You know, there's all these little battles within Christianity. What's spiritual? But let me say this. It's not only not being not personal, it's not the environment that makes you spiritual. Some would say, well, it's not the environment, but it's, it, it's the experience. I mean, let's face it. If you were miraculously healed or you had a power encounter or you had a specific, specific type of spiritual gift, and sometimes they get into tongues and all this other stuff, or you've got to have the second blessing. That will make you spiritual. And I'd say, no, it's not about the personal experiences or the disciplines. It's not about church or environment. It's not about the experience. By the way, that's kind of what Galatians was dealing with. That's really what the book was dealing with. That Christian spirituality is based on a relationship with a personal God, not the things you do. Do you see what Galatians is talking about? See, Galatians, that's the whole point of Galatians. It's not just about the law. You can, you can spread this thing out. You are spiritual if you're walking with God. It's not what you do. It's who's in you. It's who you're following. One man said this. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth quoting. Contrary to what some Christians seem to think, the spiritual life is not something that we produce within us through some ritual or method. To put it very simply, spiritual life flows from the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The life of the Holy Spirit can be nurtured. Now, I want you to catch this, because if you go home saying the wrong thing, you just... Uh, It can be nurtured by using the means of grace, such as reading the Scriptures. Is it critical to read the Scriptures? Absolutely. How about attending public worship, getting together, the one another? Is that critical? Absolutely. How about prayer? Even fasting. When was the last time you fasted? But the life itself comes from God. That's what I... By the way, you'll know if if you're doing it, if you understand this, on how you even approach the Scriptures in prayer. Do you ever pray before you get into the Word of God in the morning, let's say, and you open it up, Lord, unless you open my eyes, Lord, unless you tenderize my heart, Lord, unless you are part of this process, I will get nothing. This will be just a discipline that is dead. But Lord, if you're there working through your Spirit, this will be alive. Do you see the difference? A person that does that, yes, it's the spirit that makes me spiritual. It is the spirit that does his work. Those other things are important, but they're dead without the spirit. And we know that because religion has those elements that don't have the spirit. Only his spirit can produce the fruit. Again, we went through that the last few weeks, the fruit of the spirit. We can't. You can counterfeit it, but you cannot produce it without the spirit. He goes on, quote, The Holy Spirit does not produce this fruit for our private enjoyment. I found this very interesting. You know, again, it's just the obvious, but it's like, yeah, exactly. He doesn't produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He doesn't produce that in you for your own private enjoyment. True spirituality is not an individualistic quest for self-fulfillment, the kind of thing one... (laughs) has to climb to the top of a pillar to discover. That's not why he's doing this in your life. The life of the Spirit flourishes for the sake of others. I want you to hear that. The fruit of the Spirit is put in your life for the sake of others. That's why he's maturing you. Again, that's not necessarily obvious. Therefore, it does not grow in isolation, but within a community of faith. Spiritual life is meant to be shared. It is less like a fruit tree hidden away somewhere in a secret garden and more like one that grows in a public park. 
End quote. A lot, of, a lot of thoughts there, but the point is this. He's maturing you, but he's not maturing you just so you're happy, just so you're blessed, just for personal fulfillment. He's maturing us so that we can actually do what verse 1 says, that we can restore one another. He's actually maturing me. He's maturing you for each other. That's why when you fall, I need to be, because your spiritual life, part of this body, affects me as well. It's, it really should be this. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, again, some people, I'm, I'm concerned because some people are out on that lake and that water is pushing them out and it's going like this and they will not cry out for help because they also think that it's an individual thing, this, call, this thing called the Christian life. Hey, I got saved. God, he's my personal Savior, and now I just have to do it on my own. And God would say, wait a second. We have an equal responsibility both to cry out for help because if you're drowning, you're no good to the body of Christ, and we have to have our ears and eyes open and sensitive to what's happening because we are called to that. And, and why does he give me love? Love love for who? Others. How about long-suffering? Others. How about goodness-kindness? Others. Those are all words that point to others. Even joy and peace. Because if I am set on where I am in my relationship with God, then I can reach out. I can reach out because even if I get hurt in the process, everything between God and myself is okay. You see what I'm saying? I can be hurt if the fruit of love or joy and peace are in my life. I can even be hurt and still move forward with vigor because people will not, uh, I will not get caustic towards people. What's the other word? Uh, faithfulness, loyal, others, self-control, even as I approach. See, all those fruit that he just mentioned have to do with others. Okay, seems like I went long on that. But So what makes you spiritual? Again, verse 16, walk, lead, keep in step, verse 25. You know what that does for me? I wish I had a big burden. It just goes like this. Burden. Oh, I got it. I can enjoy my walk with God now. Because it's not about me being like, oh, I'm always failing in some area. No, no. I just need to keep in step with the Spirit of what He wants to do in my life. Do you see how that can really, especially to a legalist, unburden a legalist? Some of us are legalists. And, and we get passionate for God, rightfully so. But in the process, we forget it's the Spirit of God that makes you spiritual. And some of us forget this. And now we, okay, all these spiritual disciplines that should bring great joy to our heart to pray and to read and even to fast and to fellowship. And yet they become burdens. Even that can become a burden. So what makes you spiritual? The Spirit. The Spirit. What type of person... That, that can uh, help an overtaken one? The spiritual one. You who are spiritual. What do you mean? You who are saved and you who are walking with the Spirit of God. That's, that's the, the qualifier. That's the requirement. I would throw in one other one. Those who have personally judged themselves. Notice at the, at the end of verse 1, considering yourself... Uh, in other words, if I'm going to go help someone else, let's make sure my life, again, walk in the Spirit, I've judged myself. Matthew 7, remember what it says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you measure, you will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't consider the plank in your own? Remove your, uh, remove your plank and then you can remove his speck. And he ends by saying this, Hypocrite! 
Again, first remove the plank in your own eye. Get your, get your life cleaned up. But again, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, right? But I think there's another part to it. Just, just make sure that, you know, one of the things as I grow older, <coughs> the more and more I grow, the more and more sensitized I am to my own sin. Things that I didn't even think was even sin before now really bother me. That's how it should be. You're more and more sensitized. But you're more and more sensitized towards grace as well. Thank you, Lord. You're exposing this stuff, but thank you that it's not me that's producing spirituality. It's your spirit. I'm telling you, especially through this whole book of Galatians, the burden has been lifted off of my shoulders. I'm saying this personally. Oh, thank you, Lord. It's grace. It's mercy. It's you walking with me. It's you walking, and if you don't, I will fall that second. That's, that's relieving to me, because now I just have to depend on him. Oh, sure, there's spiritual discipline, but it's all about him. Now, if you don't walk in the Spirit, you're like 1 Corinthians 3, where it says, remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? Brethren, they're saved. I could not speak to you as to spiritual people, ones who are walking in the Spirit, what? But as to what? I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual, but as to, what's the word? Carnal, sarkikos, fleshly. Your eyes were set on this world. You were trying to solve your own problems. You were trying to do the Christian life on your own. I I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. Only carnal. And that's to a church. In other words, the entire church was characterized by carnality, fleshly. They're not walking in the Spirit. Brethren, but not truly being led, not in step with the Spirit of God. So this is the reality. It can happen in a church. It can happen in an individual. Uh, you can know a lot of scriptures and not be spiritual. Uh, you can have a very solid family, a loving spouse, well-behaved children, very successful in business, a big giver in the church and other ministries, you know, constantly trying to use your spiritual gift, taught the Bible for many years, and not be spiritual. And not be walking with God. Isn't that sad? And not be walking. By the way, let's put it in a different context. You may have come in here today got up, maybe had devotions, and was really wanting, oh, Lord, thank you, and you were on the way to church spiritual, but then something has happened. Maybe the service was too long, someone said something to you, you, you know, it's a, a temptation in your mind, and now all of a sudden you're dwelling on that, you're no longer being led by the Spirit in the last 20 minutes, and you are not considered spiritual, according to that text. You're Christian, but not being led by the Spirit at that moment. Or it might be this, you had a crazy morning yelling at the kids. But when you got in the car, you said, you know what, we're going to do something for God as far as learning about God. Lord, please forgive me. And at that point, you became spiritual. So let me draw a distinction here. We're not talking about maturity. We're talking about being spiritual. Maturity is the cumulative effect of times of spirituality. I think I put that in. That's very important to understand. Maturity is how long have I been led by the Spirit, learning by Him, and the cumulative effect, times spirituality, equals maturity. Spirituality, for a believer, is, is the moment of time when you're walking in the Spirit. Okay? So again, maturity is relative depending on one's progress and spirituality is an absolute reality that is unrelated to growth. You may be saved for only the last 10 minutes, 2 years, 
You can be spiritual. You may have been saved for 30 years and even an elder in this church and not be spiritual at this moment. But Paul says, listen, if, if a man is overtaken his fault, any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore that person. Restore. So again, that spiritual one might be anyone from an 11-year-old to a 5-year-old, even a 5-year-old. Sometimes it's amazing what kids can do to, a, to, to arrest a sinful heart. But it doesn't have to be an elder. He's not talking just to elders or just to teachers or just to uh, deacons. He's talking to anybody who is walking by the Spirit of God. Let's look at the last very quickly. Let's look at the goal. Restore such a one. Restore. Bring him back to usefulness. The word is in the present tense. It was used in the Greek for setting a bone. It was used in the New Testament for mending a net. Carterizzo. Uh, it's like when Jesus saw John and James, it says, quote, mending their nets. The word mending is that word. Mend the person. Because again, when a bone or a net, when a net has a, a hole in it, it's useless, right? The fish go in, but as they bring it to shore, now all of a sudden the, the, uh, the hole, they just go through the net. It, You've got to mend the net. When a bone is broken, I've told you the story about Colton when he had a broken arm and... Uh, well, I don't know why these things happen when Sola is gone. But the point is, I just told him, go, you know, go lay down, you're fine. And, you know, when she walked in, literally the bone that was supposed to be straight looked like this. You know, she looked in, like, why do I leave you in charge, John? <laughs> Took him down to the hospital. And the crazy thing the doctor said was, well, you know, if you leave it just like this, you have about 80% right. And I'm like, you know, what? You know, make it right. I'm paying for it, okay? But this is the goal of God. The goal of God is that you restore, restore a dislocated member of the spiritual body. Restore that one. Make them useful again. God saved them. They are his workmanship in creating Christ Jesus for good works. They are not being able to do what they're supposed to. They're not productive and useful in the body right now because they're overtaken by this trespass. We need to restore them to usefulness. Just like you would an arm. You've got to bring him back to usefulness. Now, again, some would say, well, this, this verse is really like uh, church discipline. Church discipline is found in this verse, but this is not the only... This is not uh, just a dis, uh, dissertation on church discipline. This is wider than that. Okay? So, so how do we respond? We restore. What does that mean? Well, let me, let me answer... Uh, let me give you some other thoughts on this. How do we respond to sinners? How do we respond to the overtaken? Many times it's not with the attitude of restoring. We don't go. How do we respond to other people? Let me put it kind of in the, in the, in the uh, metaphor of, uh, of a broken bone. Sometimes we ignore it. Sometimes we ignore the person that is overtaken in a trespass. I don't know if it's because of a lack of courage to confront or we pretend that it's not that serious. But whatever the case, we don't deal with it. It's kind of like the timid medical student who sees a patient with a bone fragment sticking out of their arm but are afraid to touch it. The bone is never set and the wound never heals properly. We ignore it. Have you ever had to actually confess to God, Lord, you laid that person on my heart and I ignored it and I never helped them out. Let me give you a second way we sometimes respond. We recognize the broken bone of sin but never get past making the diagnosis. In other words, how are we going to help? We see it. 
You know, in fact, sometimes we we stand around talking about how bad it is. Wow, would you look at that broken bone? And I mean, just look at the way it's sticking out. Boy, am I glad I don't have a fracture like that. Meanwhile, the brother or sister continues in pain of the sin. But at least I don't have it. And sometimes we even fall into the sin of gossip. We're sharing, but we're not helping. Remember what it says in Proverbs, the, a confidence in an unfaithful man is, in time of trouble is like having a broken tooth and a foot out of joint. At the moment of greatest need, they're out there drowning. And we're like, we're the un, unfaithful man because we're as predictable and as helpful as a broken tooth. You can't use it. Uh, you ever have your, your foot out of joint? Something twisted and every step is pain and you really can't use it and that's how we are towards them. We're not useful to them. So we ignore it or we talk about it. Sometimes, as Christians, we condemn the sinner. We blame them, even punish them for needing to go to a spiritual emergency room in the first place. We treat them like outcasts, harshly scolding them for being spiritually out of joint, almost forgetting they are themselves sinners in a need of grace. I have to be very tender. That's why Paul says, considering yourself, be gentle. I, I think sometimes, and I've seen it with pastors sometimes, they almost wear it as a badge to be able to go and confront somebody. And I find myself saying, isn't that proud? Isn't that arrogant to like enjoy church discipline? That, or to not just, again, this is not just about church discipline, but any of that process. It shouldn't, it shouldn't make us feel good to go to somebody and say, I can see where you're really in a, in a heap of hurt. That should break our heart. We should go with the tenderness of wanting to set the bone. I mean, I don't want a doctor to come in and, oh, that's no problem. Anesthesia, nah, you don't need any of that stuff. You know, let's be gentle. But knowing that if you don't set the bone, and sometimes there's a pain factor, they'll never be right again. Well, let's just leave it. It'll heal on its own. 80% is good enough. No, let's get it right. When we take people through this process, we reach out. Let's go the full distance. Let's get them so that they're useful. Again, we're, hopefully we're search and rescuers. Hopefully we're doing this for God and for them. Hopefully we go speaking the truth in love, gently, kind, humbly. Again, we're not talking about going on witch hunts here. Please understand this. When it, when it says those who are overtaken, we're not out to, like, spiritual police. Oh, I wonder who I can confront next. That's just being like spiritual witch hunters. We, we should not find in ourselves a desire to be suspicious or inquisitive, probing, prying, intrusive. No, no, what drives us? Love, concern. The hope that, that says, you know what, uh, I know that God can work in that life. I know that he can be or she can be uh, useful again to God. You go with verse uh, 2. Uh, what is it? So fulfill the law of Christ. We don't have to obey the law of Moses to get saved, but we do have to obey the law of Christ, which is love to love one another, to care for one another. So again, we're not off the hook. We're obliged to do this. We don't want to mishandle this issue because if we mishandle it, they'll grow worse. So again, I ask you, are you in that position or do you know of someone else in that position? And how have you handled it? Hopefully you're not gossiping and ignoring it. Hopefully you're starting to pray, Lord, give me the words, give me the opportunity. I want to reach out. I want to see that person useful again to you because I can see they're overtaken.
A pastor once commented, I have often thought that if I ever fell into a trespass, that's him speaking, if I ever fell into trespass, I will pray that I don't fall into the hands of those censorious, critical judges in the church. Lord, let me fall into the hands of barkeepers, streetwalkers, or drug peddlers, because such church people would tear me apart with their long, wagging, gossipy tongues, cutting me to shreds. Isn't that sad? That's a pastor speaking. Or to say it a different way, the church is the only army that shoots its wounded. By the way, I do not believe that this is our church. I I want you to understand that. I do not believe that this is our church. I do believe sometimes we take a smug satisfaction when we hear certain people fall. It's sad. He's not a believer, but you, you heard of Arnold Schwarzenegger. That man has issues, and his entire life is being shredded. I hope you prayed for him. Something even as simple as that. Now, again, he's not a believer. This is talking about believers to believers. But the point is is this. There's a lot of hurts out there. And no matter how high you think you're flying, many times it's that sin that's been there for a while, and then all of a sudden you're caught, and it's exposed, and your life is unraveling and falling apart. And it's at that moment, especially believer to believer, we have to be there And not be like the church that just takes satisfaction. Well, thankfully, that sin was exposed and he's out of the ministry. Man, let's be gentle and humble and go with the fruit of the Spirit being led by the Spirit, right? But now the assignment is this. Who is that in your life? Again, it might be you, but if it's not you, who is that? Because there's a lot of people like that in this situation. Who is that in your life? I don't want you to go away passive. I hope you go away active. Lord, Be my ears open to those who are overtaken. Lord, am I in the right position? Am I a believer in you? Am I walking with you? Lord, help me to see now how I can help restore that person. How can I go to them? Show them the word of God. Show them where they've sinned. Ask them and help them to see how they need to repent and confess. Lord, bring them back on the path so they're walking with you, so they're useful to you. Lord, give me that person. Don't walk away passive. If you walk away passive, then it's just a bunch of knowledge. Get your antennas up and be willing to risk even the relationship to to do what God wants you to do in the body of Christ. Let's stand as we worship him. Have a grateful heart to the Lord. How do you get gratefulness like that? It's because you see grace magnified. Or say it this way, how can I, how can you, how can we become very, very sensitive to the needs of others? One of the ways to do that is to consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Considering yourself. As, as I look at my life and I go over it, and I look at all the times that God has protected me, all the times that that relationship could have gone that way, those temptations could have, be, could have been succumbed to. Those sins could have been over, overtaken me. And yet God rescued me. God rescued me through his spirit. God rescued me through others. See, what does that do? Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your sustaining power. And Lord, I want you to use me in others' lives as others have been used in my life. You you really have to take note of of a historical uh, uh, account of your life and see how God has rescued you over and over and over again. And as you see that... Grace is magnified. Gratefulness is magnified. You get a tender heart towards people.
They really do. And you want to have the antenna up. And people aren't a bother or an irritation. They're, they're God's people. And Lord, I want to serve you by loving them. I trust that that's it. Again, go back in your life. See all the areas how God has rescued you. Father, again, we thank you for this morning, for these reminders. Help us be those who search and rescue. Father, again, we thank you for this body of believers. Help us to be unified. Help us to truly love one another, to bear one another's burdens. And Father, now as we go and have an informational meeting, we ask that your spirit would guide us. Again, that there will be unity. Lord, again, we thank you for this food and for your many blessings that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.